Hey everybody, what's going on? It's Christopher Zar, and it's time for today's stretch for Thursday, October 7th, 2021. And how the fuck are you? Are you doing well? Have you had a wonderful week? Or have you been closely evaluated like me? Huh? <laughs> yeah, I just had my annual evaluation uh, at San Diego State University. And it turned out to be a great one. The annual evaluation process is a beneficial process, you know, for any work site, for any workplace. And hopefully you're going to have some metrics, have some measures that are going to give you some insight into the performance of the individual, their fit in the company culture, and that type of business. And uh, I got a couple of negative marks, one of them being... Hey, Chris, your email etiquette. (laughs) Instead of saying, hey, uh, can we please fix this? Will you rather say instead, hey, can you take a look at this? (laughs) Because option number one is rude and out of the form of etiquette. And option number two is the way we do things Uh, when we talk in email speak (laughs) now email speak was not a course that i took in university or in high school or in middle school so forgive me (laughs) and it's not that you know when i send an email that i send it like i would a text you know like i don't use abbreviations i don't use phrases like lmao or wtf Right? You know, I give a greeting, I speak plainly, and I say goodbye. And uh, I try to be polite the entire step of the way, but I don't know the secret code. (laughs) And if you didn't know that there was a secret code when it came to email etiquette, then join the club and let's all take a training together. You know, if you really want to have something fixed, don't say, hey, can we fix this? Say something else. (laughs) Be more passive. Be less on the nose about the things that you're trying to say. Because, you know, you want to abide by the code. (laughs) Which I'm sure are more like guidelines and are always shifting. And I'm sure in terms of negative feedback... This is an easy one to get and an easy one to fix. So I won't labor on about it, but it's a little bit of nonsense, right? You know, it's not like I cussed at someone in an email. And how many times have we, you know, forgotten the attachment? They didn't say anything about that. (laughs) Nah, you know, I'm doing my best just like everybody else. In terms of my instruction, though, the way that I program my class, the way that I manage my class, the way that I sequence the asana, the way that I interact with the students, the way that I blend in the philosophy and the meditation and the cultural aspects within the uh, progression is all phenomenal. Like passed with flying colors. I was a step above the meets expectations and was actually exceptional. 
I'm an exceptional <laughs> instructor of yoga, according to San Diego State University, and I'm damn proud of it. But on the other hand, you know what is uh, I'm not allowed to do or a thing that I shouldn't do is if anybody's falling behind a little bit, I should, I'm told, slow down the entire class and address that one person that isn't quite getting it right. Make sure that they're staying up to speed. <laughs> it's a pacing thing, Chris, and I know it's always a moving target, but you got to do your best to make sure that everybody's on the same pace. And you know what? I respectfully fucking disagree. <laughs> and it's not that I'm saying, hey, you know, the ones that are slow, leave them the fuck behind. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that when it comes to, in particular, right, not a cultural discussion, not uh, any type of academic reflection, but specifically with the sequencing of asana, there are some people that are going to move slower. And I'm that person, actually, when I am following guidance from another yoga teacher. I am notoriously the guy that's like a half a breath behind, a full breath behind. And for the teachers I'm really comfortable with and for the sequences that I feel like I know fairly well, I might even be like one whole ass posture behind. And that's because it's a personal practice. You know, there's uh, an experience that you're having with yourself and the asana that you might need a, an extra breath for. And also, I'm a six foot dude. You know, I got a bigger wingspan. It's going to take me a little bit longer to forward fold. You know, might be taking some deeper breaths because your boy's an athlete. <laughs> I got a little bit more breath retention. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll be a little bit behind. I'll catch up. No worries. And that's me. Right. In these other sections, you know, you might have some new people and they're not really super in tune with their body. They might not be really cultivated in their awareness. And maybe, you know, they'll move out to lunch. And should I screw up everybody else's groove so I can rein in this one, you know, lagatron? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure part of the feedback, right, is to be as nitpicky as you can and try to be as perfect as possible. So I won't labor on any longer about that. But there was one other thing that uh, I was told was a no-no they don't want me doing. And that's plugging my own stuff, to which I vehemently disagree. Look, <laughs> I'm not like doing ad reads <laughs> in the middle of class, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not shouting out discs. I'm not shouting out movement. You know, I'm not I'm plug in, you know, Indochino or, <laughs> you know, anybody like that. Uh, but at the end of every section, you know what I'll do? I'll be like, hey, if you want to like link up with me, if you want to reach out and connect, here's my Instagram. You know, I do that here. Talk about my website, come through for that. And I'm not, I repeat, I'm not going to stop doing that. Because those are my babies. Those are my creations. That's where we develop a community. And if anybody tries to dim my bright, I'm going to tell them to get the fuck out of here. 
<laughs> right? Because that's what you should tell your boss. That's what you should tell your boss. Every time you get feedback, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> if only, if only the woodpecker sighs. The bark on the tree was as soft as the skies. Anybody get that reference? It's holes. <laughs> yeah, holes. I actually read that book as a kid. And I watched the movie too. And I was a little disappointed that not in the casting of Shia LaBeouf. Because <laughs> honestly, uh, every movie that I've seen uh, with Shia LaBeouf in it has been a movie that I didn't not like. You know, there's that one where I think it was Disturbia, right? That was kind of like a, a mystery thriller. I didn't not like that one. I mean, I'm not nominating it for, you know, an Oscar or anything like that, but it was a decent movie. You know, and then you had the Transformer films. Those were all great. Anything that I've seen Cheyenne, you know, it's been, it's been pretty good. But reading the book, I was expecting Stanley Yelnats, the main character of Holes, to be a fat ass. <laughs> that was like one of the running jokes in the book. I was that the guy was fat. And they didn't include that in the film arc at all. So am I upset? Yes. And should I, you know, crawl back into my Tumblr or Reddit hole, wherever, where all the other book nerds <laughs> complain about, man, this movie interpretation wasn't like, you know, the book. The book was way better. Went. No. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to leave that little criticism there. And, you know, that was a, a phenomenal, phenomenal story. There was uh, one particular thing in that book that I related to a lot because I was a fat kid when I was little. And that was uh, I would use my bread to mop up all the sauce. So, like, if there was bread that came with, like, this barbecue dish and there was barbecue sauce and, like, you know, that stuff that comes with the beans. <laughs> it's not bean sauce. <laughs> What the fuck is that? I don't know. Whatever you want to call that. I would always, always, if it tasted good, use my bread to mop that shit up. Still do that to this day. Indian food, grab a little, you know, handful of naan, mop up that yellow curry and enjoy that savory goodness. Of course. Of course I'm going to do that. Is that a detail you're going to get into in the movie? Probably not. But, you know, Holes was a book for fat kids. That's not true. <laughs> Holes was a book about you know, redemption <laughs> and making up for ancestral trauma and reconnecting friends of different backgrounds. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's about all of that. And they had, you know, some, some catchy lines in there and the song that I sang earlier was, was part of that. And I picked up Holes as a kid at the old Scholastic Book Fair, which, boy, talk about memorable times as a kid. <laughs> I do not remember all my teachers. I do not remember <laughs> everything that I learned in every class. But you can bet your ass that I remember the smell and the feeling of the Scholastic Book Fair. <laughs> that shit was all time. And there was this thing that happened, you 90s kids will remember this, where like when you went to the Scholastic Book Fair, and if you read enough books, then you'd get a coupon at Pizza Hut for your own personal 
pan dish pizza. And that shit was dank as fuck. Talk about an incentive to read. You're telling me I'm going to be able to make my own pizza pie? (laughs) And all I got to do is read these books? Sign me the fuck up. I'll take five of those Captain Underpants. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to read them all. And I did. Actually, I, uh, <laughs> I genuinely did. And I genuinely enjoyed it too. You know, that was a brilliant program to really get me into reading. And as a kid, I was, I was re- really into it. My, my mom, <laughs> bless my mother. My mom would actually, uh, scold me a little bit cause I would take books with me in the car and I wouldn't participate in like the, the family goings ons, which, you know, I had an older brother who was a teenager. You had me and then the middle child, Devin. And middle child didn't get really any, you know, flack for fucking up. (laughs) I did, though, because I was the one that was expected to perform. And then we had a baby at the time. And so you had plenty of nonsense. You know, you got a baby that might be crying. You might be watching the jerry-rigged car tv right which is kind of like an ipad strapped to the back of the head seat in front of you watching the movie cars for the 50th time this week (laughs) and between that and you know maybe like the oldest brother picking on the middle brother and there was any tension between the parents you got the crying baby you know what i could do i could go burrow myself in a book (laughs) and that's a no-no chris If there's hell going on in this family, you're going to be a part of it. (laughs) Nah, there wasn't that much hell. There was, you know, the common family stuff, of course. Who doesn't have that kind of thing? Particularly, you know, when there's a a world-changing recession (laughs) going on. And if your dad, if your breadwinner at the time also happens to be in, you know, the mortgage industry, the housing industry, the lending industry, whatever, real estate agent, then you really took a kick to the ass come 2008. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you really did. And you think uh, if you bought a new home and you got a couple of kids and, you know, your job's on the line every day because everybody's being fired from your work and you're not sure you're next. Yeah, things are going to be a little tense, Chris. They're going to be a little tense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And there was this funny thing that my mom did, too. <laughs> so, you know, my mom, uh, she is a very understanding woman. And one thing that you don't realize as a kid is that as you're growing up, you're watching your parents grow up, too. Especially if your parents are young. You know, in that case, that was the case for me. And... There's this thing that uh, we do as a family sometimes where we would do some educational stuff where we'd play hooked on phonics, <laughs> right? To try to improve our speech and understanding of the language, right? Shit little kids do. Maybe find a book that the family can read together. And my mom tried uh, the Bible for a little bit. And the man that she married is a, a Protestant Christian, right? Baptist Christian, that type of thing. So really easy going, really cool, right? Not super evangelistic or anything like that. And the stories were okay. 
you know, especially if you're reading the Old Testament stuff, you're basically reading like a, a roster of all these names you can barely pronounce <laughs> as though it were some sort of like Shakespearean intro to all of the characters that are about to be in the story instead of just telling the goddamn story <laughs> and meeting the characters as they come. Am I allowed to say that? Goddamn. When referring to something in the Bible, I'm not sure. <laughs> in any case, to switch things up a little bit, my mom had us uh, read Harry Potter. When it first came out, right, we read the Sorcerer's Stone, book one. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Harry Potter. It actually got me kind of fired up. It was a story that really came to life in my mind's eye as I read it, even without the movies being out yet. And then my mom saw something happen. You know, little kids playing make-believe, as they tend to do. And as, you know, I was playing make-believe, I was pretending to be a wizard in Harry Potter, and I cast, you know, a spell, you know, Wingardium Leviosa or some shit like that. <laughs> and my mom got really concerned. Because when you see your kids casting spells, <laughs> that's the plot line for a horror movie, right? <laughs> That might be the time where you might need to bring in an exorcist at some point. <laughs> Kid starts getting a little bit too adventurous. Maybe asked to pull out the Ouija board, that kind of thing. I didn't do that, but you could imagine how one thing might lead to another. And my mom was not about to have witchcraft in our house. And so Harry Potter was banned. <laughs> Harry Potter was banned from my life. <laughs> After only getting a few books in. And uh, I would make up for that later on. I'd go on a, a movie watching binge. And <laughs> there was this girl that I was friends with in high school. Who I also kind of had a crush on. And I remember talking to her one night on the phone. Because it was after 9pm which meant the minutes were free. <laughs> and I was talking to her on the phone. And uh, she was asked me how I felt about Dumbledore dying. And I, I, she knew that I hadn't finished the series and I didn't really at first take in what she said. I was all like, Oh, when does that happen? And then immediately following up after that, I was like, Oh my God, Dumbledore dies. <laughs> and I was really upset about that. And I kind of turned that, you know, upset energy onto her. <laughs> And that wasn't fair, right? You know, she's just asking an innocent question. And uh, so that was a bit of a spoiler for me, unfortunately. And when I saw that scene later on, when I did my binge of all the movies, uh, I, you know, it really hit, hit it home for me. You know, it took me back in time, had a moment of forgiveness for that friend that spoiled that moment for me. And I, and I wasn't even that bad, you know, my... A brother that's not the middle one, so not number three of five, but number four of five. He was a baby when we were doing that. And Harry Potter was banned in our house <laughs> during his entire upbringing. So by the time he got to high school, when they did a Harry Potter theme week, he was literally the only kid in his class who had no idea what the fuck anybody was talking about. <laughs> and the looks, the looks that he got from his classmates... When they found out, he had no idea what anything was, what a Hufflepuff was, what a Gryffindor was, 
<laughs> you know, who's Snape? The glaring back black looks that it got from those people is worse than the looks that a girl gets when she's wearing a band t-shirt and a man asks them to name three albums. <laughs> it's like, get off my fucking back. Okay? Not my fault. My mom banned it. You know, she banned that and also water guns. Because <laughs> she didn't want violence in the house, which is not her fault. Right? You know, she... She was around a, a decent amount of violent men uh, in her mid-20s. And she didn't want her boys to end up like them. And it took her a little while to come around to the notion that boys have certain instincts in them, certain feelings in them. And so by the time, you know, classic story, by the time the youngest brother, number five, comes of age, he's getting Nerf guns, he's getting water guns, he's allowed to play war video games, and all the older brothers are all like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and my mom just smiles with grace, and she's like, well, we learned. We, we learned. We learned from each of you. <laughs> you know, boys have that energy, that energy, as she calls it. <laughs> and you got to give them, you know, healthy lanes to channel that. And water guns are a good way to do that. Nerf guns are a good way to do that. And, you know, playing these war games on, you know, your console was really good for developing your high-hand coordination. Your eye-hand coordination, mom? Are you kidding me? You're pro video games now? What is this world coming to? Yeah, I know. Family drama. <laughs> And everybody's got it. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> for those of you that aren't from the United States, you, you might just be absolutely losing your mind <laughs> what I've been sharing. Although, I think Harry Potter is kind of universal. I bet. You know, if you're from the Middle East, you might be hearing this shit being like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Right, you know, you got bombs going off in the distance every week of the year. Everybody that, you know, comes of age is required to serve in the military. <laughs> and what kind of sheltered life do you live, Chris? Where are you from? Yeah, I know, it's it's bananas. It absolutely blows me away too. And and I definitely don't take it for granted. You know, like I I live in a part of downtown here in uh, San Diego, that is nice and cozy, cuddled up next to the uh, the densest homeless population <laughs> area that we have, which is not like uh, Los Angeles' Skid Row. Trust me, I've been through there. And it's nowhere. The feeling that uh, the homeless give you when you're in San Francisco. And yeah, I've, I've been there too. Uh, in fact, my my roommate and friend who's from L.A. made a comment after we've been here for a little while that, you know what, with all these homeless people around, they're actually, uh, you know, they're surprisingly quiet. <laughs> Which is good, I guess. <laughs> you know, they're not heckling us at all. You know, they're not uh, shouting and having arguments with their imaginary friend or foe, imaginary foe, I guess, because they're having the argument. They're probably not a friend. Yeah, although I do wonder sometimes, like, when I when I see a homeless person, like, having an argument or, like, 
casting themselves out. It's like, why do I never see a homeless person having an, a conversation with an imaginary figure that's like friendly? <laughs> you know, like, oh, hey, how, how's the wife and kids? You know, <laughs> nothing like that. You know, it's just some some demon or some energy or some imagined politician <laughs> that they're having a problem with. But uh, in any case, being cozied up uh, right next to um, this dense population of homeless people. And, and it's because um, not too far away from here is the uh, the hub, the bus stop, the, the last trolley stop before it branches out into, you know, all the areas. And I'm sure it's like, hey, you know, we're just going to ride this <laughs> today. <laughs> You know, I got a couple bucks. How about I hop on this thing and uh, take a lap? <laughs> Look at the city. <laughs> no, I'm sure they're not doing that. But, you know, it's it's the last bus stop. It's the last trolley stop. And, you know, we're at the, the corner of the United States. So there's not much more south to go. And there's certainly not much more west to go. And right across the street, you know, from uh, from my garage is the... It's like a food bank or like a, like a soup hall, right? Or whatever you call the place where uh, homeless people, you know, will, will get food. A place that supports them here is called God's Extended Hand. And it's, it's a bit of a, definitely a contrast, you know, because on the one hand, when I'm in my apartment, you know, I look out the window and I see the Coronado Bridge looking over the bay. And then when I get to the street level, you know, it's like when I'm driving up, there's tents, there's tarps, and there's all kinds of trash. That's one thing that actually bugs me. Homeless people are not environmentally conscious. <laughs> Which, you know, I don't know. What do you expect, right? <laughs> you know, you expect uh, homeless people to <laughs> be like super aware, be like, hey, man, I'm going to clean up after myself. No. <laughs> they have a hard time maybe because of mental challenges or you know or despair you know but they don't really think to <laughs> recycle their plastic water bottle <laughs> they don't really think to take the wrapper from their food and actually just put it in the trash they just fucking leave it <laughs> and these poor these poor workers i see them week after week you know they drive up in their trucks and they got hoses attached to it for probably good reason and no no it's not like <laughs> la riot type hoses <laughs> they're not spraying homeless people to get them to move but uh, they're using hoses to you know maybe wash down the walls that reek of piss right maybe it's a you know power wash away the shit stains that otherwise might be on the ground and to help clean up after them and uh with that regard, they're, you know, these homeless people are just like spoiled rich kids. <laughs> You're not allowed to say that. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, one time I uh, was I was driving and I got uh, my freeway off ramp. And sometimes you'll see a homeless person there. And uh this person was asking for money and, and I didn't have any money, but I had a whole apple with me. It's like, I have a backpack with me typically. And sometimes I'll carry food in there. And so I reached into my bag and I pulled this apple out and I went to hand it to him. 
And this guy looks at me and he's like, oh, that's awful nice of you, but I got no teeth. And then smiles real wide and he's got like one snaggle tooth on the right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, geez, you do not. You do not. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I did not mean to make that assumption. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't know. Is, is homeless <laughs> the right... Um, the right nomenclature. <laughs> oh, I maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm not, and I'm not making fun of them either. You know, they got, they got hard times, right? And I'm just making light of my observations as I'm walking around my neighborhood and that type of thing. And um, and I'm really grateful that one there that this type of thing can coexist right because it's not like you can just you know put all those people in a particular place and because i don't know about you but like i don't want to touch them (laughs) oh that's still fucked up but it's true you know and i'm not expecting anybody else to touch them you know i'm gonna put on like a hazmat suit (laughs) you know or at least like a, a gas mask so that way you can make your way through the aroma no, I mean, they're not like deranged animals, right? But it's not like you can physically, forcibly uh, move a person that's in that condition and just like pick them up and put them somewhere else. You could have zoning laws. You could try to do some things that can provide some help and support in a community type sense. And then where's that community going to be? So, yeah, I mean, it's got to be somewhere and everybody's going to be like, oh, well, not my neighborhood. And certainly it's got to be in some like urban dense area right because that's where they're most likely to be able to receive tips (laughs) if you want to call them that but this thing can uh can coexist in a way that that is um at least to some degree accommodating you know because maybe that's the best thing that you can do is like where those type of people end up, you have resources to where they can train for a job, get a job. You can have resources, vouchers, right? To put them in some type of shelter while they work at a job and save up money so that way they can get into their own place. And this is all happening, you know, within just a few feet of, of my, you know, my little apartment here, you know, in in East Village. And on the other side of me is, you know, the ballpark and all these, you know, beautiful restaurants and bars, you know, the gas lamp nightlife, (laughs) right? It's only 10 blocks away. And I'm in this, in this tower, metaphorically speaking, that's got a jacuzzi on the roof and a gym. And then here on the street are, are these souls here. And I think it's important, like, not to not to turn away, not to look away, and to have a direct encounter with things, with people as they are. At least I try to, you know. And uh, that that's the best thing that I feel like I can do. And, you know, if possible, give them an apple. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, in light of the yoga and meditation this week, I kind of spoke on this earlier, but 
I was having a, a lecture with one of my sections, not at San Diego State University, but at the University of San Diego. And, uh, and I asked them a few questions. You know, one, hey, uh, give me the, I uh, put them in a group and I said, give me the, the median for how long each of you have practiced yoga or at least like known about yoga. And then they gave me the numbers, right? And they said how many people were zero years, how many people, you know, were a couple of years and how many people were more than a few. And the median turned out to be two, but with the mode, they were happy to inform me was zero. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. So this is a group that is uh, somewhere between zero to two years. So either brand new or like early beginning. And uh, this group was asked another question. Hey, name an iconic figure uh, in yoga. And when they came back to respond, they were like, honestly, we don't really know that many, but one of us guessed Steve Jobs. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know, that's that's a technicality, but we'll allow it. All right, because when when Steve Jobs died, what he gave away at his funeral was uh, to every person that was there was a copy of this book called The Autobiography of a Yogi, which, I mean, out of all the things that you might have anticipated Steve Jobs to give, that would not be <laughs> that would not be it. And that book, Autobiography of a Yogi, was about a, a particular individual by the last name of Yogananda. Uh, just a moment. Uh, thank you, Grandpa Rick. <laughs> and that, that yogi, by the name of Yogananda, <clears throat> founded the Self-Realization Fellowship. There's a, a temple out here in Encinitas. There's a beautiful meditation garden that if you haven't been to it, I definitely recommend you go. And in that book, it talks about Kriya Yoga, which, you know, with Kriya Yoga, you're not really <laughs> uh, doing what you're doing in a famous yoga studio. When I asked them, hey, do you know any like, uh, what's, what's the most well-known yoga studio that you'd practice at unanimously, they said core power. And that makes sense, right? It's like core power is like the Starbucks of, uh, of yoga, right? Um, both have an iconic brand. Both are found in every strip mall in every, in every major city. And both of them annoy the fuck out of purists. <laughs> No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I know coffee purists, uh, <laughs> they do sometimes have a hard stance against Starbucks, although I think it might be a little unfair. Um, and I think the same thing with Core Power, too. You know, Core Power, they just they have a good business model. You know, they understood how the mechanism of investment, of how to acquire property and set up a space for people to be there and a pricing model that actually makes the space sustainable. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, they, they got that figured out. Um, and what they do is something that's very uh, rudimentary, right? They're just, we're focusing on the body here. We know that you're coming here probably because you want to feel better about your physical self. So we're going to turn up the heat. We're going to sweat. You're going to feel stronger. You're going to improve your flexibility. And we're going to have uh, some trademark sequences. 
that our teachers are going to share with you and you can participate in these teacher trainings if you want. We'll sell that model. And that's core power, right? And, that, and it makes sense that, that they're kind of famous, but what they're doing at core power is not, <laughs> not what Steve Jobs is pointing to there with autobiography of a yogi. And uh, when I asked them, oh, why did you take this class? You know, what, uh, what were you anticipating to do? Uh, there was some, some grumblings about, uh, like, are we just doing a lecture today? Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> you know, I thought we we're going to be having some movement. We're going to get in some deep stretches and that type of thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I didn't mind the murmurs, right? It's, it's okay. It's like while they were in that group and having that, that's something that they can share with themselves. And when they came back to the group or came back to the discussion part, they told me that, I mean, we, most of the students took the course because they wanted some structured time to improve their body, whether it's just to, to feel better in their posture or to treat like a nagging injury. And then there was one person, one individual who said uh, to develop knowledge about yoga. And that was a very small percentage. And that's typically what I can get. Um, in this space in particular, San Diego State actually has a stronger yoga culture than USD, but you know, USD is a private school. It's a Catholic school, not anticipating a lot of people are going to be into yoga, especially when, you know, yoga's up the devil. <laughs> no, just play it. It's not, it's not, it's not the devil. Don't, don't worry about that. And then <clears throat> I asked them, oh, what was their definition of yoga? And, um, a common answer was mindful movement, you know, moving intentionally and incorporating some aspect of, of breath and meditation. And there was one girl, a Russian girl who was taking a, an Eastern studies class who, uh, and her English was a little broken, but pretty good. And she said, there's this explanation from that class that talks about uniting this little self with a bigger little self with a bigger self. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I wrote that down up on the whiteboard. And I looked at all these answers here. And I said, Hey, I, I understand where you're coming from. You're coming from the place that most Americans do with yoga. And that's, Hey, man, I'm here to improve my body. Want to stretch out a little bit, you know, maybe find some peace, find some Zen, find some calm. And they're not aware that uh, yoga, you know, where it even originates. Some people might guess India, but they don't know. And they don't know what yoga means, what it translates to, because it's not an English word, right? It's a Sanskrit one. And when they hear the word union, they're like, okay, that's interesting. Like, like to yoke together, to join. And what is it that, you know, is being brought together here? What is it that's being linked? And this mind-body connection is, in a secular sense, one of them, right? You know, and some people forget about that part. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this mind-body practice. And then they just say, oh, uh, fuck the mind, <laughs> right? Because they're so into their body. And, you know, that, that outermost layer of the self 
is an easy one to to remain in, to remain with, because it's the one that you can most closely feel. And so you have this, you know, this mind-body connection that's certainly being made, and then this little self to, to bigger self connection is something that an individual becomes aware of once they have disciplined their body enough so that way their body is under their own command you know so your body is not like aching at you wanting to fidget around and move but you can actually be still and feel good about it to sit upright and be alert have alertness with your relaxation and then when you are awake enough alert enough to lucidly observe witness detect and also when a person is relaxed enough passive enough uh, to listen and receive then what a person begins to see for themselves is a space between the witness that's in them and the thoughts and the feelings that they have which is important and they also begin to witness this relationship with the universe around them, the cosmos around them, the little self with the bigger self, as the Russian student said, or at least certainly that you as a person are not a foreign object in nature. You're not a somewhat that exists in this bag of skin. You're going up against nature and that type of thing. You are nature. You are this universe. You are this cosmos. And not just in an abstract sense and not just in a molecular sense, but everything in between. And so what does you know doing these postures have to do with it? Well, at the beginning, very little. At the beginning, very little. If you look at the Yoga Sutra, if you look at the eight limbs of yoga, if you look at what yoga was described as in the Bhagavad Gita, it had very little to do with how well you could do a warrior two <laughs> and how sexy of a backbend you could do <laughs> and how you look doing the splits in your Lululemons. It wasn't about any of that. It was about cessation of the modifications of the mind. It was about evenness of the mind. It was about perfect action. And so I took a breath and I paused because I kind of realized that all my students were a little bit shocked and a little bit shook. <laughs> and, you know, there's a, a real fear of all the white folks out there of misappropriating another culture. <laughs> so this was kind of like a shaken by the shoulders moment and a moment to awaken to uh, this really uh, beautiful discipline. And so I said, now, I did that at this point in the semester because I want you to leave this course and understand what yoga is defined. Union. You can say that, certainly, and you can remember that forever. The unification of what? Depends on your practice, depends on your philosophical approach, 
Depends on your school of thought. And we're going to explore these different modes and these different schools as we make our way through the semester. And then I closed with a meditation and that was all beautiful and whatnot. And I, I guess I wanted to share that with you. And so, <laughs> zaryogastudio.com, you motherfuckers. <laughs> Go to it. Go to the membership page, sign up, join me. Uh, drop in for the meditations, drop in for the breath work, drop in for the asana practice. You can do it anywhere. You just got to schedule time with me and we'll fucking do it. Um, or, you know, uh, TikTok, Instagram, Yogazar. Instagram also, uh, my personal page at Christopher Zar. And uh, let's be friends, you know, have some laughs. And uh, fuck around a little bit, just like we do on this podcast. Now, that's all I got for you. <laughs> have a wonderful weekend. Um, this weekend, I also encourage you to reach out to someone that you appreciate, a mentor, a teacher, a coach, a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while, and let, you, let them know that you appreciate them. All right, next week, I'll talk about what it was like going to homecoming at my old high school. I love you. Take care. I'll see you next time. Peace.